All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part two of this spectacular expose, I would say, of the huge uh, corruption, well, nay, conspiracy. That was where we were at, actually. So there actually is a conspiracy. Sure. They say the conspiracy is that the critics are aligned with the oil companies. But what is the real conspiracy? Well, the real conspiracy is that um, global warming due to humans has been created and deliberately promoted uh, for political control. Mm. And remember, people, conspiracy theory, the derogatory word that CIA introduced, actually, back in the JFK days to get people away from. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, being skeptical to the Warren report, quite successfully, I must say. And, um, you know, everybody knows this now because it's been uh, revealed officially. But nonetheless, even if it wasn't a derogatory word, remember that a conspiracy has to be a theory or a hypothesis because once it's known, it's not really a conspiracy theory anymore. <laughs> it's just valid yeah. as long as it's something secret. So you're kind of doomed to... You know, it's a, it's a loose-loose thing if you start talking about conspiracy. You get brand-marked as a kook, but on the other hand, uh, you don't have a, any other alternative. Because unless you can expose the whole thing, right, then, then it becomes a conspiracy fact. Yeah. And this is actually getting a, a conspiracy fact, isn't it? It's yeah. not a theory anymore. No, and the the uh, I mean to put it in context, there's a there's a form of argument called reductio ad absurdum mm. that is reducing to the absurd. So if we take the current definition of conspirator or or conspiracy theory, uh, you you would say at the time that Galileo was a conspiracy theorist, mm. right? Mm. It it's just a matter of uh, challenging the, the, somebody that challenges the prevailing wisdom and shows that it's incorrect. Yep. And of course, as you said, they've got to be marginalized both by those the power elite. Mm. So the corruption then is uh, every huge state institution is a part of it. The uh, over national institutions like UN has been hijacked on this area. Uh, does it go into private industry too? Yes, except that the private industry uh, where they went wrong, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, was mm. that they they started to become uh, they they tried to use. Uh, environmentalism uh, for a PR thing. And in fact, they've become more effective at, at pushing the, the uh, global warming issue than than the uh, global warming uh, uh, alarmists. But um, no, business is about profit. And uh, the minute they start saying, no, we're not about profit, we're, we're selling you organic food because we care about you and the environment, rubbish. You're selling it because you can charge four times more than regular mm. food for it. And, and if you were losing money on it, you'd be out of business. So yeah. don't, don't, don't uh, insult my intelligence with those arguments. And one of the things that happened with this whole global warming thing, I went around to the oil companies in my early involvement with it and said, look, the CO2 that you're going to be attacked about is scientific rubbish. And they brought their scientists in. They said, oh, yeah, you're right. 
But then what did they do? They said, uh, no, we're, we're, we're going to try and appease the environmentalists. So they started funding Greenpeace and Sierra Club and so on. Now they're being attacked by those groups. And, of course, I just laugh at them and say, hey, you got what you deserved mm. because you didn't stick to the facts. You tried to play the political game for a marketplace advantage. So – so to hell with you. Okay, let's let's examine the political aspect here. Um, yeah, there, I think there's an incentive on both the left and the right to be both against and for it. I'll tell something to the leftists uh, that can motivate them, and that is that uh, if we are not careful, if we if we do not stop this thing, it will become like a way to tax the poor. In fact, it's happened already. Yeah. I heard about uh, many of these green taxes. They don't. First off, they don't even go to. They go to the people who collect them. Second of all, they're not even donated or used to do anything about the environment. It's just a symbolic tax. And when you start mandatory taxing from this. Who's going to be uh, struck? It's the poor. The rich don't care. They can pay, you know, fines, whatever. That's why uh, you can't have a flat tax on uh, tickets, for instance. That just means that if you're poor, you'll be crushed if you do this thing. If you're rich, you, you kind of just pay your right to do this thing. Right. And so it's a class perspective here that the left is completely missing. Yeah. And another perspective that should uh, scare them is that there was some revelation about Greenpeace. One of the guys who actually founded Greenpeace, he's jumped off and he says, hey, they are using this CO2 hysteria to destroy environmentalist organizations because when it inevitably in the future is exposed to be a huge lie, and maybe that it may, made more harm than good, actually. Then who will look like the guilty fellows with eggs on their face? Primarily the hysterical yeah. environmentalist yeah. companies, not the, not the big uh, players in the shadows who's pulling the threads. Yeah, the, the person you're talking about, of course, is Patrick Moore, who was the co-founder of Greenpeace. And I've, I've known Patrick for 30 years or more. And he told me a long time ago that and the original idea of Greenpeace was like the idea of environmentalism. It was a very, very good idea. And in the early days, you, you probably remember this yourself, saying some of the things they did, uh, hey, good for you. You know, hmm. but then other things they did, you start to say, no, 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 hold on a minute. And and gradually, but what happened, as Patrick told me, he said, after four years, at the Marxists moved into the Greenpeace organization. And he said, I fought it for three years, but by the eighth year, I realized I'd lost complete control. Hmm. And it was being used for their political agenda. And he said, I got out of it. And of course... Uh, he's been attacked. Uh, uh, he told me one day he went home and here was a whole huge pile of of manure on his front yard and, and dumped by the Greenpeace people. And uh, but but this is the this is the talent of Patrick. He turned it to his advantage because he called the media and said, uh, oh, look, uh, some kind people have given me some nice fertilizer for my garden. <laughs> he started spreading it I bet he could apply it. Oh, yeah. But the big picture yeah. here is that uh, today I, I had to reevaluate re who I was f uh, supporting because yeah. I realized the two I support now are the only 
only two who actually works with real environmentalist issues. All the others are so distracted by the global uh, uh, global yeah. warming thing that most of their work and resources that could otherwise go to yeah. useful stuff, like say a factory is putting out shit in the water that children drinks. Yeah. That's something they should be concerned about, not chasing these CO2 ghosts. Yeah, yeah. But they, so they're ruining, they're ruining them today and they're ruining their future reputation, is my point. Well, that, yeah, exactly the point. And you mentioned earlier the trillions of dollars that they've wasted on this that could have been spent on solving other problems. Mm-hmm. But there's a bigger issue with this. And mm-hmm. that is that as you, as the public start to learn the extent to which they've been lied to and deceived, they will start to say, hey, we don't believe anything you tell us. Yeah. Now, this is the classic uh, story, uh, the Aesop story about the boy that cried wolf. wolf yes, exactly. And when the wolf finally did show up, the villagers weren't listening to him anymore. Mm. And and this is what I'm concerned about. So I've already switched my attention. In fact, I started it 10 years ago. And, and just to illustrate that idea. In, in the early days, when I questioned the global warming, of course, I got attacked and people would say, inter- media interview me and, and, and a, an audience is gonna, would get up and say, you're giving comfort to the polluters. Mm. And, and I tell you, that bothered me for a long time mm. because that wasn't my intent. But then I finally realized that if you uh, tell lies – that in the long term is giving more comfort to the polluters because the polluters can turn around and say, hey, they lied to you. Mm. So I can keep doing what I'm doing. I bet they're just waiting till this is exposed to say that. See? Well, See? yeah, probably. But Because but I, I just said, read about yeah. I just read about the huge of the funding that goes into this, let's call it a conspiracy, yeah. comes from none other than oil companies. Yeah, that's insane. Yep. Why? And they, the narrative, of course, is that oil companies are funding you. Have you gotten your paycheck yet? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I haven't had. A, I haven't received a nickel. But as I said, I did try to get money from them thirty years ago. Oh. But they, <laughs> but they chose to appease the environmentalists. So it's just appeasing. But then they could be neutral. But now they're financing it. Why yes, would they do but, that? But they, they've been doing that from the start. Wow. They've been giving money to Greenpeace. Obviously, there's something into it for them. They're not doing it from the bottom they of the heart. Thought that they, they thought that they, by paying them, that they could silence them. But like of course, the tobacco industry. Yes, thing. Yeah, okay. exactly. Mm. Yeah. And by the way, that tobacco thing, you know where that started? Mm-hmm. Fred Singer, who was one of the earliest battlers on this whole global warming deception. Fred is now 92 and a very good friend of mine. And Fred, who doesn't smoke, has never smoked, was asked. He's an atmospheric chemist. So mm-hmm. he knew about CO2 and the constituency of the atmosphere. And he was asked to do a research on the um, on secondhand smoke. There was a, a, a research done showing that secondhand smoke was causing cancer. Fred looked at the research and said, secondhand smoke does cause cancer, but this piece of research is terrible research. It, it is not good enough to support that argument. Hmm. They then, since then, have turned used this and said, oh, yeah, no, these global warming people are like the uh, tobacco, anti-tobacco people. So that was all orchestrated as well. 
and and that's where that whole story started and they still use it gore still uses it oh yeah these are the same people that told you that smoking was no problem nobody ever said that and fred singer definitely never said that but that's how it's been used see this is the cleverness of these people it's like it's like with psychopaths Hmm. they are extremely charming and clever Hmm. And it's not until they stick the knife in your throat that you you find out what you're you doing. You see their true nature, yeah. So the yeah. means of how they're controlling science today is through media. Yep. Uh, they make sure that, the, first off, they make sure what's politically correct to think so that they don't even have to control media. It's just that the editors and the owners make sure that what's being written is in line with this. They, they can't afford being, you know, different or whatever. So that's one control mechanism. Yep. Then you have have the funds and the grants that's just obvious uh, so eventually that will take care of the new scientists too and then you have uh, like you said a smearing those who are criticizing and they're booting them so uh, i think the most important institution to control is the media and uh, who's giving out grants and who's deciding who's going to be editors uh, and publishers of scientific work? Is that uh, correct? Well, the, uh, yeah, that in in a limited way that's correct. Mm-hmm. But by far the largest group that are controlling the whole thing, and this was also orchestrated, and that is the bureaucrats. Right. Maurice right. Strong deliberately set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change through the World Meteorological Organization, which is uh, made up of the bureaucrats from every national weather office. Okay, so state bureaucrats or, or scientific bureaucrats? Uh, both. Mm, okay. Both. Mm. And, and think about it. I mean, just to give you the example that I had in, in my personal example, uh, and I know it, it, it resonates with all the others, but um, there's a, there was a fellow at Environment Canada. And by the way, uh, the person that chaired the founding meeting of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was a, a scientist by the name of Gordon McBean. Mm-hmm. And after he chaired that founding meeting, he became an assistant deputy minister. That's the second highest level of bureaucrat in Environment Canada, the government weather agency. Mm-hmm. And of course, then pursued it because you see strong new if you controlled the bureaucrats, you controlled the politicians, mm-hmm. particularly with a scientific issue. Now, Henry, Henry Hengeveld, who, by the way, made a career, literally made a career out of CO2. He published a a monthly bulletin called the CO2 Digest as a bureaucrat. And and here's the problem. I told Henry, I said, Henry, you people have spent a lot of time convincing the politicians that global warming is due to human CO2. And you finally convinced them that you think that's a victory. But what you convince them of is an untested, unproven theory. And. Uh, as Richard Lindzen said about the global warming theory, um, it, the consensus was reached before the research had even begun. Mm. And I said, what you're going to, what's going to happen is gradually the evidence will come out and show you are wrong. But then what are you going to do as a bureaucratic scientist? Are you going to go to those politicians and say, hey, that theory I told you that you both based your whole political career on is wrong. It isn't going to happen. You know what? I disagree. I think they can get away with it because you see that even politicians 
get away. Let's say, take the Iraq war. Those people in England and America who said that this is the right thing to do, they have mass destruction, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be so fine. We're going to get on top of this. They uh, were wrong, but they got promoted and rewarded. Those who were critical, those who said what would happen, and we're right, they got all booted and censored in politics, in media, all over the place. And so if they control, if you first have managed to destroy science as a fact-checking thing, as the method, then it doesn't matter. Then, Then one ideology can be toppled by another. It's no longer, now it's been a Game of Thrones. Okay, all right. But no, but let me get, here's the thing. My point is, is I'm telling you that it is guaranteed to corrupt the science to have a bureaucrat who's a scientist. Mm. It is absolutely guaranteed that they will. How come? uh, Well, because they'll get fired if they tell the the politician what they don't want to hear. Let me give you another Mm. example. The Canadian, there was the complaint about uh, the American coal burning plants in the Midwest were producing acid rain in Quebec and killing the maple sugar industry. You got the same thing in Scandinavia where uh, Maggie Thatcher and they said, oh, the the coal from Britain was causing acid rain that was killing the forests in in Europe, the the black forests and all the rest of it. Mm. Okay. I was chair of a committee on climate change, a Canadian committee on climate change, and I was in Ottawa for a hearing where we were trying to reconstruct climates of the past and understand what was going on. One of the, a bureaucrat came up to me and he said, I've got a problem. And I said, well, um, what's your problem? And he said, no, I won't talk about it here. I said, but this is the Museum of Canada. No, no, he said, the walls have ears in this town. We met at the airport. This is the level of paranoia that you've got. Yeah, cloak and dagger, huh? Yeah. And and so we met at the airport, uh, Ottawa Airport. What was his problem? He was told by his uh, his, uh, boss in in the bureaucracy to get the evidence that American coal and uh, was causing and the acid rain that was killing the maple sugar industry in Quebec. While he was doing his research, the Prime Minister of Canada is going around the world saying, this is what's happening. Mm. The problem was his research didn't show that that was the cause. The mm. cause of the decline in the sugar industry in Quebec was one because they were getting very early warm, causing the plant, uh, the trees to start to grow, and then a hard frost that forced the tree, uh, killed off the tree uh, uh, leaf growth. But the tree will always recover. They have a catch-up factor, but the tree will recover by producing smaller leaves, less leaves, therefore less sap. That caused a decline in the yields. Um, they were, they, uh, that, was, that was one of the factors. The other factor was that they were experiencing drought. Hmm. Both of those factors combined were causing the decline in the sugar, maple sugar yields. But here was this guy saying, I've done two years of research. I've got my evidence. What do I do? And he didn't. It, it, what does he do? He, he, he goes to his boss and his boss says, hey, you're fired. Mm, mm. This is not what I want to hear. No. Right. And, and so I said to him, the answer is obvious. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you did your research. You must retain your integrity as a scientist. 
but at some you're you're being asked to make a political decision you're not at that pay scale you do your work you give it to your boss and your boss or somebody above him will decide this is political dynamite i won't let this go any further this can only be revealed if the new ideology seizes power like we could have said is happening in america now because trump is okay. not on board with this. It, well, Trump, okay, but, but why isn't Trump on board? Well, I think it's, if it was true, he wouldn't be on board because it threatens economical interests. He's business friendly. So he wants the regulation away. I don't I, think I, he I, understands this issue at all, but I think he has the political, no, no, the economical incentives. To, I, I've got to, I got a, a full disclosure. Yep. I was invited to Washington a year ago last November mm-hmm. to participate in a panel organized and directed by Trump wow. to investigate what regulations at the Environmental Protection Agency needed to be changed, yeah. what needed to be done about the false science of global warming. And uh, there were. Uh, this was organized. Yeah, but he didn't uh, personally. Uh, who's behind that incentive, right? It wasn't Trump personally, was it? Yes. Yes, he directed Myron Ebell. In fact, he got a Myron Ebell, who was the head of the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington. And I knew Myron for 30 years because I, I uh, made a presentation at the Competitive Enterprise 30 years ago in the same time that I uh, pre- uh, presented before Congress. Hmm. And Myron Ebell was appointed to uh, by Trump and, and directly from him through his administration. Uh, now, Myron and Trump never directly talked. I'll grant you that. So he's not Trump's advisor? Not directly. No, okay. But he was hired as the advisor to the Trump uh, uh, group. Mm. Okay? Mm. And and um, uh, Trump, and, and by the way, he asked the question that I asked. I said, when did you get appointed? He said, in October. I said, but Trump wasn't elected till November. Wow. And he asked them that, and he, he said, well, how could this happen? Yeah. And he, the, the answer came back, Mr. Trump is a developer. And developers know that if you don't have everything ready to go on day one for the building, it won't get done. Yeah, but how could he influence the hiring in October? That was Obama uh, cabinet. No, he didn't. He didn't hire him. He appointed him. Yeah, appointed. Right. How could he make that happen? Well, he he just said to him, "Look, you're you're already looking at this. I want you to prepare for when I get elected." Then okay, I think I misunderstood. I thought you said he was appointed during Obama's. Period. No, he was asked during the Obama period by Trump to be prepared. Oh, okay. 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 Mm. So the answer came back, as I said, that um, Trump isn't a, a developer. He then asked a question that I would have asked as well. Mm-hmm. He said, well, wh- why isn't Trump dealing with the uh, uh, the accountability issue of, of what Hillary did and all the rest of it? You know what the answer he got there was? When you're a developer, you don't have the roofers on the site on the first day. In other words, what Trump was doing was doing things in an order that would be successful. Okay. And 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 anyway, Myron was still organizing all of this when Scott Pruitt got appointed. That's why Scott Pruitt got attacked so much and got and ended up having to resign. Yeah, just recently. Yeah, because all of the information, but but because Pruitt. Uh, took the axe to the APA right away. He knew exactly what he had to do. Now, how did Pruitt know so much? Well, Pruitt was the attorney general of the state of Oklahoma. And the senator for the state of Oklahoma is a Senator James Inhofe, who was the only senator who 
fought against and dug out all the information about what was wrong with the global warming issue. Hmm. And he hired a guy by the name of Mark Morano as his research assistant. And between them, they produced a, uh, a United States Senate minority report on what is wrong with the global warming uh, science. And you could But unfortunately, it's been politicized, as you're indicating here. And in America, it's like if you're on the Democrat side, you have to believe in it. And if you're on the Republican yep. side, you have to be against it. But it's not like that in Europe. We mentioned Corbyn, for instance. One would think, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's brother is uh, like opposite. No, no, no. He's fully supportive of a progressive government. But it's not the liberalists. It's not the corporate the Democrats or laborers. Uh, the Blair. Blair, yeah. Not Blair. People, his new name is Blair. <laughs> yeah. So it's not his faction. It's the people on the bottom kind of faction. So so I just want to put that out that you don't have to be left or right to have an, a view on this. This is unpo this transcends politics. It's about facts and not facts. Oh, no, no I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. But the number of people that won't say anything because they get branded, like the scientists that I mentioned to you earlier. And there's many leftist scientists, so that explains right, also. Leftist, yeah. And by the way, an awful lot of politicians. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've had many of them uh, admit to me that no, we agree with you, but we're we're uh, socialist. Or like Jeremy, I don't think he talks very loud about this issue, but no. I'm pretty sure that when he takes over after a while, he'll start rolling back these things because you don't really have to... Well, be, uh, it's like you said, they put up yeah. uh, uh, these many signatures. I don't want us to fight back with putting up the opposite. I want us to fight back with changing the system. Yeah. So all all uh, government has to do when they come to power is to uh, uncorrupt the central positions that are causing this. And then, bam, from there okay. will be uh, right. unfolding. Okay, let's get let's get back to the Trump issue because you see one of the things that we talked about in that group of about a hundred in Washington, yep. of which I was a part, mm -hmm. um, and the other one of the other scientists there was a fellow by the name of Tony Heller, mm. and Tony is the one that has shown how they've adjusted and uh, corrupted all of the data. He's done more work on that than anybody. Nice. But anyway, one of the things that um, I made I pushed strongly was that if Trump was going to uh, stop or slow down at least the climate issue, he couldn't and shouldn't do it on the basis of the science. Right. And the reason that I argued that was that, first of all, few people would understand what he was saying. True. And secondly, because he wasn't a scientist himself, he would get tripped up so quickly with the facts and the science that, and made to look a fool yeah. that don't even go there. Yeah, it's so brilliant. I, I see what you're saying, because this is classically out of from the detective kind of thing. If yeah. you want to expose uh, a crime that's yep. uh, done by power people, better you expose the cover up exactly. than the crime itself, because that's where you can get them. It's so brilliant, exactly. man. Exactly. Okay. And so what we said to him, well, look, look your, your platform for running for office was that you are opposed to bad deals. Mm. The Paris Climate Agreement is a very bad deal, and here's why. And, of course, the Paris Climate Agreement was simply uh, approving the Green Climate Fund, which was the replacement for the Kyoto Protocol. Mm. So it was very simple. And, and by the way, just to illustrate the, the point of my argument, Myron and the boys came back and said, but we've got a problem with 
the bad deal argument. Yes, Trump himself will go with it, but his daughter Ivanka wants him to sign the Paris Climate Agreement. We said, get Trump to show her the climate Paris Climate Agreement. She is a good enough businesswoman to see it's a bad deal. She immediately changed her mind. And that is when Trump went forward. That's how that happened. Wow. Okay. So, right, so that, right. that was what went on there. So now, of course, you see that Pruitt's gone, but the guy Wheeler that's replaced him, Andrew Wheeler, is actually better informed about the, um, the CO2 and the climate and the fossil fuels because and he's the head of the EPA now. And if they try to get rid of him, it'll it'll appear like uh, bullying. And but Wheeler, his career before getting this appointment to the EPA was he was a lobbyist for the coal industry. Yeah, that's how they smear them. Yep. Yep. So it's not clever, I think, to put up someone who seems to have other incentives, because then you can just dismiss them as being motivated by that, right? Yeah, exactly. They should yeah. find someone who's neutral. Okay, can I can I use that uh, that comment about the Green Climate Fund and the Kyoto Protocol sure. to leap into what what how how all of this evolved and developed? Yeah, let's take that now. Okay, well. Um, as I said earlier, in 1968, there was a group uh, started by uh, Rockefellers, and it was called the Club of Rome because the first meeting was held in Rome. And there were a very large group of, of very influential people there, Ted Turner, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, and so on, in, and more wow. strong. Quite a Bilderberger thing. Oh, yeah, quite a Bilderberger thing. Mm. And they decided, because of... Uh, reports by Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb and was the first person to put on the world table the idea the world's overpopulated beyond Malthus. And, and, and so he convinced the Club of Rome that the world was overpopulated and they took the Malthusian idea that the world population would outgrow grow food supply and said the world population would would. Uh, outgrow all resources and that became the central theme of what they were trying to do that uh, and then they narrowed it and they said that um, yes everybody in the world is using resources uh, poor and rich um, but the um, and and the number of people in the world is increasing therefore the demand on the resources will constantly grow and uh, but the industrialized nations are using resources um, at a much greater rate than the developed nations. And um, in a book called Cloak of Green by Elaine Dewar, and uh, I, I love to cite this book because Elaine Dewar was of the old school of investigative journalism mm. uh, in that she set out to write a book praising Canadian environmentalists. Mm -hmm. So she had a list of people, uh, David Suzuki, Elizabeth May, the head of our Green Party now, uh, Morris Strong, and, and she was going to write a book saying what great people they were, what great work they were doing. But the more she talked to them and the more she investigated, the more she discovered that they were more corrupt mm. than the people that they were attacking. Mm. For example, Elizabeth May was working as a lawyer for the uh, uh, Department of Natural Resources of the federal government of Canada, and they were trying to uh, uh, block 
the building of, of hydroelectric dams in Saskatchewan and where she was supposedly working with the government to uh, promote these dams for cheap and safe electricity, she was giving the environmental groups all of the secret documents. Hmm. And the government, what, what they did was they, did, they didn't fire her. They just said, look, you can, you can resign and we'll just let this all go. She resigned a very, very well-paying bureaucratic job. And, of course, she then went and became the head of the Sierra Club. But anyway, one of the people she interviewed for five days was Maurice Strong. And she went to the United Nations uh, to talk with him. And um, he said to her, you know, what do you think's wrong with the planet? And he said, uh, look, the problem for the planet are the industrialized nations because they're using up all these resources. And isn't it our responsibility to get rid of them? Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned this idea earlier, the, the, the number of thousands of ideas every day, but the number that actually get put into practice is very, very small. One of Strong's abilities was his ability to organize, to take an idea and make it happen. Mm-hmm. All right. And I want to, to just uh, at this point, uh, another a very, very important thing. All change, everything in, in the world starts with an idea. Everything. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a religion, whether it's a, a, a product, whether it's a country. America started with an idea. Everything starts with an idea. But what happens is, and I've studied this extensively, what happens is that gradually, in order to disseminate or spread the idea, you need a structure. Mm. And of course, what happens is that a structure is rigid, but it's rigid in an environment that's changing all the time. Mm. And so gradually what happens is the structure becomes more important than the idea. Mm. Now, the classic example was the Catholic Church. And before any of your listeners get angry at me, you must distinguish between the Catholic Church as a structure. Oh, we don't have many Christian sheepish (laughs) listeners. No, it doesn't matter anyway. I don't care because because the point I'm going to make is there's a difference between the Catholic Church, which is a structure, and Christianity, which is an idea. Exactly. Right. And and we and we know that the original Jesus is very different from what Catholic Church became. Exactly. Yeah. And George Bernard Shaw, a great English or Irish uh, playwright, said, "You know, Christianity is the greatest thing in the world. It's just." a pity nobody ever tried it exactly (laughs) which is very good but anyway what happened of course is that the church gradually became more important than the religion until martin luther said hey you know you've got people the rich people being able to buy their way into heaven and the Mm. poor people can't what kind of religion is that Mm. And by the way what's interesting and i've written articles about this there's one on my website about it Mm -hmm. um if Martin Luther had tried to overthrow the church with the Reformation, even 20 years before he did it, mm. he would have been uh, arrested and executed. Yes. Mm. 
Uh, but here's here's why. You know, in Europe, there was the Hanseatic League, yep. which was a whole economic league that developed around the Baltic. That's why I speak like this. I, I can just tell that now. <laughs> People wonder because the Hanseatic League was, was Germany driven. Yes. Where actually our town, my hometown, Bergen, was one of those, not colonies, but one of their. Well, those, yeah, right. I don't know the word for it, but no, okay. they were more influential than the Norwegian king. Yes. Well, the Hanseatic League was built around the herring fisheries in in the Baltic. Okay, but what happened was, and it got to the it got to the point where people in the Hanseatic League, the church said, you can pay, you can buy indulgences for your way into heaven with herring. (laughs) The herring became a viable currency. Okay, now what happened was. When was the Hanseatic League operating? Well, around 13, 14, 1500. Yes, even when more. the world was warm. Right. But as the world started to cool down, the temperature started to change. Let me remind you, folks Greenland was green once. Yes, yes. And the Vikings settled there. Exactly. And, and, and so gradually the, the, the water in the Baltic cooled down, the temperature dropped, the salinity decreased because the rainfall increased. And as as you guys know, through, I can't pronounce it probably, probably but the Kattegat and Skagerrak. Yep. Kattegat and Skagerrak. Yep. Okay. Th- that entrance into the Baltic means that the flow of water in and out of the Baltic is very, very limited. Mm. Right, and it's getting shallower all the time because the land is rising. You're gonna, you're gonna have to either put a canal through or do something. But anyway, um, the the Baltic Ocean became less saline. In fact, it got to the point where people in what is now St. Petersburg were able to take their drinking water out of the eastern end of the Baltic at that time. Mm. The herring, of course, like all fish, are very sensitive to their environment, so they migrate out of the Baltic into the North Sea. That caused the collapse of the herring fisheries and the collapse of the Hanseatic League. And so within a few years, uh, literally a few years, it went from the poor people can't afford to buy their way into heaven, we don't care. The middle class people can't afford to buy their way into heaven. We don't care. The prince can't afford to buy their way into heaven. Now we care. And we'll support Martin Luther. that will go, go and attack those nests. Ah, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, these things are all linked to that. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so the political climate of any day. Yes. Obviously needs to be optimal for, you know, whatever to win. Yes. So, uh, and today, I think you're right, we're in a transition zone. It's getting easier to be a criticist now. Well, but there's there's a reason for that that I'll get to in a minute. Yeah, battles like yours. But anyway, the Club of Rome decided that um, uh, that the people were using too much. And because of Maurice Strong's idea um, uh, that it was the industrialized nations that had to be shut down. Mm. But think about that. How do you shut down an industrialized nation? From within. Well, you yeah, but but you see, if you start, if you cut the fuel prices, or sorry, if you increase the fuel prices, as you know, the minute the prices go up, people complain. Mm. They'll they'll form lines and attack. But so that's politically very difficult to do. Energy prices has exploded. They never go down. They only go yeah, up. Yeah. Well, exactly. And 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 so it's political dynamite to to cut off the the energy flow. But if you could show 
that those industries and think about uh, uh, an industrialized nation like a car burning fossil fuels. You can stop the car by cutting off the fuel supply, but you can also stop the engine by plugging the exhaust. Mm. So if you could show that the exhaust of the car or the industrialized nation, which is CO2, is causing a global catastrophe, then you could, now you've got a, a reasonable, rational reason right. for shutting down industry. I see your point, but I, I just want to point out anyway that uh, if, if even that was true, which is it ain't, but if it was, then there's no reason attacking cars because they've never been the majority of CO2 producers. <laughs> Well, but what about all the cows, for instance, factory cows or the airplanes? Yeah, the cows, the cows was the methane issue, and 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 uh, that that was the that occurred before the CO two, because back in the seventies there was a group of people led by a guy by the name of Jeremy Rifkin, and he wrote a book called Beyond Beef, mm-hmm. and he actually set, did a whole. Uh, PowerPoint presentation around the world that you can Google. It's Jeremy Rifkin, R-I-F-K-I-N, Beyond Beef. And the whole campaign was that the that the cow was destroying the planet and causing global warming. Okay, and I fought with that. I became a technical advisor to the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. And we started pointing out that methane was only 00 uh, to 6% of the total greenhouse gases and an even smaller amount of the total gases in the atmosphere. And and I also pointed out that uh, if it's the cow that's the problem, then let's do the whole formula. Yes, the number of cows have increased in America, for example, from about uh, 200,000, 100, 120 years ago to 85 million today. Nobody's mm. arguing they haven't increased. Mm. But in that same period of time, the number of, of buffalo have decreased from about 100 million down to about 200,000. Mm. So let's put both sides of the formula in play here. And then if you consider the sacred cows in India, mm. where there are 200 million of them that don't even produce any foodstuffs, we can't blame India. That's a developing nation. That's not fair. Mm. So well, and oh, well, then what? Well, then what about the rice paddies in Asia, which are the largest source of methane from human activity in the world? Oh, why don't we can't? Yeah, but that's food for people, so you can't count exactly. that either. Yeah. Yes, mm. but you see, this is this is this is what happens the minute you start to introduce science into the claims that they're making, mm. and so the methane issue uh, quickly went away. The CO two issue was a different issue and uh, but it, but it was it, it was the same theme that we want so- yeah but isn't isn't aren't they saying that uh, the factory production of cows is uh, keeping the co2 pro- uh, exhaust up there's no correlation there no no because because um well just to give you an example of how little we know about this mm. They discovered uh, about six years ago, German scientists, again, you can Google this, they discovered that the the rainforests of the world, and they were actually studying the Amazon rainforest, is a major source of methane. Right. It's also a major source of CO2. And naturally, because the rainforests in the tropical regions are are they're very different than all the forests of the rest of the world. Okay. Because you, you know... In, in Norway, you've got two types of trees. You've got deciduous, which drop their leaves every winter, right? Yep. And you've got the evergreen with the needles that don't drop their exactly. leaves, yep. right? Now, the trees in the tropical rainforest 
always have leaves. Yeah. And nobody ever thinks of that. They are evergreen. Right? And how do they function then? What happens is they're sitting on the most infer infertile soil in the world. Why is it that way? Because the, the amount of heat and rainfall washes all the minerals out of the soil. What's left is virtually mostly iron. That's why the tropical soils are so red. They're called laterites, mm. which it implies the iron origin of them. In the rainforest, what happens is the trees grow leaves, drop the leaves, the leaves immediately start to rot, mm. and that is then taken up by the tree again. You clear one section of the tropical rainforest, and it doesn't recover. The soil bakes iron hard. Yeah, but they're reducing it record amounts not, these not days. True. Not true. Oh. Do you know where that figure came from? No. That figure came from um, the uh, accountants at the World Bank. Because one year Jeez. they were asked to do a budget of how much money do we need to uh, tackle deforestation in the tropical rainforest. And so they went to the scientists and said... Yeah, but I've, I've seen uh, like, uh, you know, footage of how they uh, cut down and uh, expand. Oh, Yes. So that's all propaganda. Of course. Let me, so let me the good news is that rainforest is in good shape? Yes. So the rainforest... Yes, it's like, it's like here in British Columbia. I can show you pictures of... of uh, areas. What about all those people who, who look for minerals and stuff like that, those companies? They are just spot, very, very localized uh, impact. And m many of them now are, are going in and, and uh, replanting after they leave. But but to get okay. back to what was happening with the World Bank, yep. these, accountants, these accountants said to the scientists how much rainforest is being cut down they said we don't know so the the, the accountants who had to come up with a number as, assumed that it, the 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 figure that they used uh, but it turned out to be 82 percent above what was actually being cut but that became the real number that was touted there again it was swedish scientists that dug into this and looked at it the same thing happened with the amount of the growth of the uh, uh, sahara desert Remember that issue of desertification, and finally, yeah, isn't that right. true either? Well, no. They finally they they went and got the satellite data and started measuring it, and in fact, the Sahara Desert had shrunk, not grown. Wow. Okay. I have to look into this because uh, I mean I have to verify out, it. But out, there is not a single environmental story that bears investigation, and if you want to look at one one book, yep. just one book to save you time. Yep. It's called. But is it true? Mm, excellent title. The name of the author is Aaron Vidalsky. W-I-L-D-A-V-S-K-Y. Oh, I'll definitely check that one out. All right. He was, he was a political science professor in America who had graduate students. And he said, look, we're hearing all about these environmental problems. Let's investigate it. And each student show, chose a topic, whether it was deforestation, acid rain, whatever it was. And he said, and these were master students, by the way, graduate students. They all went and did their investigation. Every one of them came back and said there was no scientific support for the claims. Okay. But look, there are real pollutions going on. Of course. Like, like okay. in your country, no, in America, in USA, they have this drinking water that is uh, killing people. 
Uh, stuff like that's happening all the time. But yes, of course, there's of course there's there's that. But but uh, like in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. But what what caused that? That what that was a technical error by the people running the place. Yeah, I'm not it saying was, it's global warming. I'm just saying no. that there are environmental causes worth fighting for. Well, but but I wouldn't call that environmental. I would call that uh, a local. Yes, you you can pick any issue and find somewhere in the world where you can show this is a problem. This is what the media do. Hmm. I'll give you an, another example. I was asked by a TV uh, station, they were doing a program on pollution. They said, give us a list of ideas of how we can report this in our TV program. Hmm. I gave them a list of about 20 different ideas. The producer came back and said, I can't use most of these. And I said, why not? He then confirmed what that great Canadian, Marshall McLuhan said. Mm -hmm. He said, because it doesn't fit the medium. I can't show that on television. And McLuhan's comment was the medium is the message. Mm. And one of the things, how would you show pollution? The ugly truth of it to get reactions so people wake up and support it. Worst case scenarios, I would show well, them. Okay, but virtually any program, any story, any newspaper, the one picture you see all the time mm. are smokestacks with supposedly pollution coming out of them. Yeah, yeah. But today, in not, certainly in America, now not in China, I agree there's problems in China, mm. and they dealt with it during the Olympics, and then they've let it go again. Yeah. That's because right. uh, they want to grow their economy. That's more important to them. But virtually every smokestack you see in the Western world today, that is steam coming out. It is not pollution. Oh, it's no smoke. It's steam. Yes. Huh. It's steam because they've got scrubbers on them. This is the problem. Well, you're preaching to the choir because I went from smoke to vape. I'm a vapor. And I, we don't want to be called smokers at all because there's no fire. No smoke without fire <laughs> exactly. is what they say, right? Yeah. We're dealing with water here, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and by the way, what, while we're pursuing this thing, and you can read Vidalski's book for yourself, but one of the biggest stories that triggered the whole environmental movement was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Mm -hmm. And and that was I was drawn up short on that issue when I was on a radio program and a fellow phoned in and said, who's killed more people in history than anyone else? And, of course, the host and I start guessing Hitler, Stalin, mm -hmm. Mao Zedong and so on. And he kept saying, no, no, no. And then he said, in fact, you'll find that that they most of them didn't kill anybody. They had other people kill people right, for right. them. So who was it but then? Rachel Carson. <laughs> and do you know why? Because she made up the story, the lie, that DDT is causing thinning bird shells, which was never, ever proven, had yeah. nothing to do with it with raptors. And she did it because she believed her husband had died of cancer caused by him coming in contact with DDT. Mm. And so she went on a campaign and because of her, they got DDT banned. And because DDT has ba been banned, since it's been banned, 
at least 120 million people have died in Africa from malaria that didn't need to die from malaria. And what's happened since, by the way, and again, you can check this, at least 17 African leaders have said, to hell with you. We're going to use the DDT to stop the, the dying of, uh, of our people. I mean, in, in our show, we're all about paradigm expansion. But I have to say, you're yep. really stretching mine to the limit because <laughs> I've been forced fed yep. from I was a little uh, chicken that, yes, uh, DDT was one of the errors we did in the past, like, you know, like quicksilver in the teeth or like uh, asbestos in the walls. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's looked at as progress that we're not using DDT anymore. Now you come here, what, 70 years after this became a truism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're yeah. saying even that is a part of the manufactured consensus. Jeez. All right. Let me, yeah, let me quote a Middle Ages chemist. Uh-huh. Alchemist. He was called an alchemist because. Oh, I love alchemists. Let's hear okay. it. Okay. Yeah? Yes, and and there there were a lot of good ones, but oh, yeah, yeah. Par- Paracelsus. Oh yeah, he was a genius. Yeah. Okay. His medicine is so effective. And his comment covers all of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Let's hear it. The toxicity is in the dosage. Right. In other words, I've heard that before. Yes. Okay. Anything can be toxic. Uh, yes, you. you uh, well, I I point out to people, if you eat all the salt that's in the salt table on your on your table, you die. Mm, that's true. So, are you going to ban salt? Good point. In other words, it's not a no risk world. Mm. There's risk to everything, but what we do is we try to calculate the risk and uh, uh, accommodate some and not others. Now, when you come along and say anything can kill you, yeah. Okay, so what? Oh, then that allows me then to to ban or to pick anything I want to stop you using it or doing it. Okay, I get your All point. Right. But, you but get my point. Yeah, but I see your DDT and I race yeah. you with the following. <laughs> yes. And now we're going off the deep end, but let's address this yeah. question I have to you now. And after that, I want you to tell us about the court case. But right. let's first go uh, into Luniland, because one of the big uh, conspiracy theories out there is uh, so-called chemtrails, yeah. corn trails, chemtrails. And, you know, in the beginning, when they talked about this, they were saying that, oh, it's because they want to kill off the population. But now among those who think this is an issue is that what they're really doing is global dimming because they believe in a uh, global warming so they try to spread artificial clouds as much as possible to reflect because we know that if there were no ice on the poles the earth will be really hot because it reflects most of the sunlight yeah. so uh, from that thinking if they can spread aerosol which they we know they do so if they can cover the, the globe with that then they can reflect more sunlight and they can prevent uh, global okay. warming now even if this was true even if this was the motivation even if global warming was a reality even if this was the effect i would be against it because you're not going to meddle with a natural ecosystem like that when you don't have all the facts and then we never had all the facts in anything everything is a progression right yep. we learn all the time so so that's what i want to throw out there to you and now you can run with it in either direction <laughs> okay what what you're referring to it comes under the collective of geoengineering yeah and of course uh, you know I, you, you, if you're if you're a, a christian you can say well this is what happens when you get rid of god you got to play god yeah, and you find exactly. you find out i tried it at home it's a very difficult job <laughs> but but, but um, yeah. uh 
fact, when I started studying climate, global cooling was the consensus. And there were all sorts of crazy schemes. Yeah, because I heard we were going towards the ice age. Is that yeah, true? Exactly. Yeah, well, yes, because because the, the global temperature, which, by the way, increased more between 1900 and 1940 than, in, than it did in the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, but from 1940 to 1980, global temperatures were going down. And so, of course, they were doing simple linear trends and they said, oh, it's going down. It's going to keep on going down. So you had all of this harem scarum yeah. things going on about, about global. But then, with the, but then we learn more about sunspots. Well, we've known about the sunspots. The Chinese have known about them for a very long time. Yeah. But we knew that um, that the uh, temperature of the Earth correlated with sunspot numbers. Mm. Basically, the warmer the Earth, the more sunspot numbers. The cooler the Earth, the less sunspot numbers. And this has to do with cycles, right? Well, the problem was it was a correlation. We didn't know the mechanism. Yeah, right. And, and this is another of the deceptions of the IPCC. Um, a fellow by the name of Henrik Svensmark mm. came... Uh, found the explanation um, and we had known for a long time for example that there's more uh, cloud in the atmosphere than there are aerosols or condensation nuclei to form those clouds okay. that's why cloud seeding works you you add particles into the cloud so that more water vapor as a gas condenses into water droplets to form more raindrops but that's not chemtrails because you can see with your own eyes that what comes out of the planes become these new type of clouds that I can't even remember from my. Well, they were they childhood. were they were using they were using silver iodide. The, what's wrong with it is that you don't know how much the, you can't determine how effective it was because you don't know how much it would have rained if you hadn't seen mm. the cloud. Mm. So you've got no starting point. But um, so say this whole geoengineering ideas. One of them was, by the way, was to build a dam across the Bering Straits mm. because the, I remember. Yeah. <clears throat> the Soviets were saying it was so cold. If we build a dam across there, we stop the cold water coming out of the Bering Sea and cooling off the North Pacific, which would then warm the whole middle latitudes and warm us up. Wouldn't wouldn't you say that the Suez Channel plus the channel down in um, between North, North and South America, aren't both those really geoengineering? And anything that you do is geoengineering and anything you do is going to have an effect. Yeah. One of the effects of the canals, particularly the Suez, mm -hmm. is that there's been an interchange of species right. through the canal between uh, that. And that actually, I think, is the bigger issue. Mm. The only other time it becomes an issue is if, if you're starting to divert large amounts of fresh water uh, off the land into the oceans. And that's one of the things that's happened in the Soviet Union when they were diverting uh, major rivers from the south to the north. Mm. And uh, so they, they connected, um, I've forgotten the names of the rivers, but the Volga, the Ob. Right. Yeah, that's huge geoengineering, man. Yes. And, and, they, and then you have these global dams, these huge yeah. dams. Yeah. Well, they were, doing, they were doing it in the Soviet Union primarily because they wanted to be able to take submarines from the Black Sea up ah. to the... Uh, up, up to the uh, their major submarines. The military concerns were governing. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, it's the same thing in America. The whole interstate system in the in America was built 
as a defensive mechanism for the military to be able to get around very quickly to all parts of the U.S. Right, right. And uh, so, yeah. But the, so the whole idea of geoengineering, they were even talking in the cool period of putting up um, huge, great reflectors in space to direct heat, yeah. heat into northern cities. Exactly. So, so that makes sense then about these uh, artificial clouds, that it's kind of the same idea going on. What do you think? Because yeah. I, I know they deny that it has happened deliberately. But now they are openly discussing doing it, well, what people have accused them of doing already. Well, yeah, there are several problems with it. First of all, there were other high-altitude research going on in which they were experimenting with the, the F layer in the ionosphere. And that was all about communication around the globe, mm. which was going on before you had satellites which gave you coverage. I mean, if you think about the Soviet Union, for example, it's the largest country in the world with probably uh, most of the coastline of no use to it at all. Mm. It's It really is a, a trapped nation, which is ironic for it being the biggest. They have two coastlines, Turkey and Norway. Yep, yep. And and of course that's been the center of of their of their attention. Now you've got Vladivostok, but it's so far removed. Yeah. But 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 anyway, uh, let let's get back to the uh, to the the climate the issue thing. Yeah. Um. So Elaine Dewar. Oh, well, I'll just finish the thing about the chemtrails thing. Yeah. Um. So the government said, "Hey, yeah, we're getting all these complaints about global warming, and we're telling people it's the problem. So we better be doing something to try and limit it or control it." So they started uh, the spraying of, of aerosols, um, which of course then became the chemtrail issue, and so on. And now they're talking about global dimming. To global, yeah, what, uh, yeah, sun dimming and so on. But here's the problem with all of that. Uh, most of what got reported as chemtrails were, in fact, contrails, condensation trails from right. high-flying jets. Mm. Because while all of this was going on, they developed jet engines that operated more efficiently in the stratosphere ah, than in the troposphere. That's why it's new. Yes. Because those clouds are goddamn artificial, man. Oh, yeah. Well, but you, if you I look, can't remember them from when I was well, a child. Think, yeah. Well, think about... The, uh, there are clouds that form in the stratosphere. They're called noctilucent clouds because they're ice crystals that are only visible as a night light mm. when, when the sun is very low and it reflects off them. Mm. We've known about them for a long time, but they have increased in number. I suspect it's because the water vapor from the jet exhaust is creating more of them. Mm. And um, so the increase in noctilucent clouds and uh, reported chemtrails is as much about these high-flying jets. Mm. And where you see the greatest increase in the reports of chemtrails is over northwestern America. And the greatest increase in high-altitude traffic has been between America and Asia. The number of flights every single day is absolutely amazing. That's a pretty strong correlation. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, uh, but now back to Svensmark. Svensmark uh, and, the, and what we were talking about was the correlation between sunspot numbers and global temperature. Mm. We knew there was a correlation, but it was just that, a correlation. Svensmark, wor working on, I uh, forgot, Christensen and Larsen, I've forgotten the names exactly, but Christensen was one of them. They published a paper in 1995 showing that the length of day varied 
with the variation in um, the sun's magnetic field. And Svensmark then picked up on this, and he created a theory called the cosmic theory. What he showed was that the sunspots varied in number with changes in the sun's magnetic field. And as the strength of the sun's magnetic field changed, it changed the amount of cosmic radiation from deep space reaching the Earth. Mm. As that cosmic radiation reaches our atmosphere, it penetrates into the lower atmosphere and creates condensation nuclei that creates cloud. So this was a cause of cloud cover in the lower atmosphere that we did not know existed until Svensmark showed its existence in 2000. He had to have confirmation of that. And one of the things he needed was he needed uh, research done at the CERN laboratory in Geneva to show that if you bought cosmic radiation from space into the Earth's atmosphere, it would create these nuclei. Well, the CERN lab did the research, and they withheld the research. And the head of the research lab at CERN said that he was ordered not to release it. Mm. And this is another of the corruptions that went on. And you can check with Svensmark about this yourself. Okay. And he um, eventually they showed, if you look at the plot of low-level cloud against cosmic radiation, it's almost a 98% fit. And, of course, if you've got a greenhouse and you put uh, a screen up, or if you've got an earth and you put cloud up, that's going to control your temperature. That's why the relationship between sunspot numbers and global temperatures uh, occurs. So the, the cause and effect has been explained for the correlation. But none of that is included in any of the IPCC research. And only in the most recent uh, report do they even mention that it's it is there. Mm. They don't include it in any of their computer models. Now, I heard they were purging any solar science from the UN yeah. scientific research. But are you saying that are, are they deliberately spreading more clouds? Do you think they are? Well, what I'm saying is that the American government was for a period of time experimenting with uh, using aerosols to reduce global warming. Yeah, because, so they did do that. Because yes. they're discussing it openly now if they're going to do it. Yeah, but but you see, this is their problem. You know, the government, they start stories, and then when they create panic, they got to deal with the story. Mm. And and this is what happened. They 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 were going around, oh, global warming and humans are causing it. And and then, oh, well, you know what? Uh, yes, I'm looking at it as a whitewash. I'm thinking that they're discussing if they're going to do it now, because they're going to end up doing it. And then yep. they don't have to explain that they have done it already. But, but think about the contradiction, Al. You, this is the problem for with people, and I've I've experimented with this. Mm-hmm. You in in one minute you get somebody saying, "There's too much government. We got to reduce government. There's too much taxes." Thirty minutes later, the same person is saying, "Here's a problem here. Why doesn't the government yeah. do something about yeah, it?" Yeah. And they don't even think about the contradictions in yeah. those those statements. Mm. And of course, that's what the government are constantly trying to deal with. Mm. They're try- they're creating problems in order to have control, but then that creates a reaction which they then have to deal with. Yeah. So they're putting out their own fires all over the place. Yeah. And so they're chasing their tail. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Okay. So th- this change in in fuel, which is a very good point. Yeah. Uh, 
was that just natural development or was there an intention there do you think that they wanted an extra effect like never let a good opportunity go to waste let's piggyback on the fact that we're already sending them out there let's not put something in the fuel that creates a certain effect you know what i mean oh yeah a more sinister yeah i and I, I think it was the present mayor of chicago rahm emanuel who said never let a good crisis go yeah, to waste crisis go to waste and, exactly. and so yeah I, I don't think there's any doubt about that okay but 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 you, you you have to piggyback onto that this whole larger scheme of the club of rome yeah. and and the <clears throat> but anyway yeah, did you complete that uh, yeah, storyline yeah that idea yeah well elaine Dewar in her book when Maurice Strong said to her, we've got to get rid of the industrialized nations, she said, well, why don't you run for politics? And he said, you can't do anything as a politician, which is probably the only honest statement he ever made. Yeah. But then she said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to go to the United Nations because I can raise all the money I want from whomever I want, appoint anyone I want and control the agenda. That's why he set up the United Nations Environment Program. Mm. And <clears throat> and by the way, this is a very important uh, idea that's part of this. I used to think the commissions of inquiry were a good idea mm. because you could say, finally, we're getting the politics out of the issue. Let's have an independent, uh, apolitical group look at the issue. Yeah. What I discovered on the appointment to my first commission of inquiry, which is, was about conflict on a lake in Manitoba, Canada, mm -hmm. was that commissions of inquiry are the perfect vehicle of control for the politician. Right. And, and you discover this from the inside. Yes. And why is that? Well, because, first of all, they can then ignore, the politicians can ignore any questions from the media by saying, I can't comment till the commission reports. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they go back to their offices and with the bureaucrats determine what the commission can look at. And uh, so with this water thing that, that I was charged to look at, the terms of reference were so limited that we couldn't even get the data we needed. In other words, they were predetermining the results of the commission by controlling the terms of reference. Mm. And uh, what I did was I went to the chairman of the commission and said, you go tell them, the politician, either we get access to everything or I'm going to tell the media that you're trying to predetermine the outcome. Once we got all the information, we discovered that there had been three previous commissions, one 100 years old that I identified all the problems and all the solutions, and none of them had been dealt with, not one of them. And when you look at conspiracy theories, you've already talked about, one of the things with the internet, it is that people are saying, oh, it's triggering all these conspiracy theories. Why? Because people have access to information that even a lot of governments didn't have access to before. Mm. And they're starting to realize that there are a whole lot of stuff that the governments, through these commissions of inquiry, have not been telling them. And I'll give you the classic one. Mm -hmm. I was watching television one day, and Chief Justice Warren, who was put in charge of the commission of the Kennedy assassination, was interviewed. Mm. And they said to him, why didn't you look at the mafia connection in Dallas with Jack Ruby and, and, and the killing of Oswald? And the justice said very calmly, it wasn't in my terms of reference. Hmm. 
I knew exactly what he was saying, but most of the audience had no idea what he was saying. But what's turned out to be one of the largest conspiracy theories on the Internet today is who killed Kennedy. And so this is what's going on here. Is, is that people are starting, they have access. Yeah, then you have to demonize the source, which is the internet. Yes, exactly. Now, I'll finish up with the doer thing, but, but I want to raise another point with you. Mm-hmm. After five days with Maury Strong at the UN, Dewar concluded Strong was using the UN as a platform to sell a global environment crisis and the global governance agenda. Okay, hmm. so what what Strong did was he then he he set up the United Nations Environment Program to to organize all of this. He then set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which was his commission of inquiry. Okay, mm-hmm. and he then wrote the uh, regulations for that um, commission of inquiry. He wrote the definition of uh, climate change that was given to them at the Rio conference in 1992. And of course, what they did was they limited the definition of climate change that that uh, IPCC could look at to only human causes of climate change. Mm. That means, of course, that you then eliminate the sun, you eliminate all these other factors, and, and therefore you predetermine the outcome. Yeah. And and this was all done deliberately. Yeah. Uh, the thing that made it for me when it comes to the sun, which made me so certain, is the fact that NASA, maybe they did that, this uh, without thinking, but they released the fact that all the planets in our solar system is currently undergoing climate change. Yeah. Not necessarily global warming. Some of them cooling. Yeah. And, we, and, and so when the NASA released that uh, research, that was it. Because you cannot think that it's my car who, let's say, melting the poles on Mars, right? (laughs) So that just shows you has to be a higher course, which is much more far-reaching than whatever goes on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let me, uh, when NASA did that for a reason, but it wasn't NASA. One of, about 2015, I forgot which year exactly, I was at a conference in Washington on climate. Mm-hmm. And I was invited to meet with a group for breakfast. And there were about, I think, eight or nine of them at the table. The person that asked me to uh, be the, with the group was Harrison Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Harrison Schmidt was the last astronaut on the moon. Mm-hmm. And he had started to look at this climate issue and discovered how corrupt it was. Uh, but what this group, and these were all engineers and people associated with NASA, what they were really angry about was that there's an organization called NASA GIS, mm-hmm. which is the Goddard Institute of Space Studies. Right. Okay. That organization has been the major source of false information uh, for the global warming issue. Uh-huh. And it started... Uh, and, and by the way, Harrison Schmidt and he got 55 other NASA astronauts and people. To, they, they wrote a, a letter to NASA saying, you've got to stop this uh, a bit, uh, a misuse of NASA for a false scientific issue. Mm. You're giving it uh, giving all the good work we've done a very bad name. Now, what happened was that um, when the global warming issue came up through the Club of Rome, 
One of the people that was involved with it was Ted Turner. He was a member of the Club of Rome, but he also CNN, yeah, yeah. Now he he also uh, was uh, involved with a uh, Senator Timothy Worth, W I R T H. Now Senator Worth was in in the U.S. Senate, and he got brought in with the Club of Rome through Turner to push the whole. AGW, that is anthropogenic global warming issue, uh, Worth arranged for a very, very low down NASA GIS scientist by the name of James Hansen, who, by the way, none of his uh, graduate work was in climate at all, none of it. But he decided that global, global warming was a good career issue. So when Worth came to him, he heard about him, Worth went to him and said, are you prepared to appear on a witness stand in the Senate and say that you're 99% certain that humans are causing uh, climate change? Hansen said yes. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> let me fill you in on the story on this. And you again, another Google for you. Google PBS Frontline. Mm -hmm. PBS Frontline. Yeah. And then Worth, W-I-R-T-H, interview because worth in that interview with pbs frontline said explained how he chose hansen and how they staged the whole hearing hmm. what he did was they they found out what was the hottest day of the year on average in washington that's the day they scheduled the hearing for <laughs> they went in the night before opened all the windows and shut off the air conditioning. Jeez. And so here was the hearing on about global warming held in this sweltering hearing. It sounds like a psyops oh. because they're thinking as much about the psychology okay. as about the yeah. case. Well, let, let, me, let me take this even further yeah. because now, worse, by the way, only served one term as a senator. And you've got to serve two terms to get pension and everything else. So why on earth would anybody only serve one term? The reason Worth served only one term was because Ted Turner gave a billion dollars to the United Nations of his own money on condition that the United Nations set up the United Nations Foundation and hire Timothy Worth as the vice chairman of it. And that's where he is today. Hmm. Well, of course, this story about what he did in Washington is coming back to haunt him. So he, he now has come out and said that he lied to PBS, that the whole story he told PBS was a lie. That doesn't make you look any better. You can't trust no. the guy for sure. Of course. Mm. And yet this is the guy that, that was so influential. That Hansen hearing in 1988 was what triggered this whole thing. And, and and so uh, that's how it began. And, and by the way, beyond strong, giving them the definition of climate change as only human causes, the, the truth is you cannot possibly identify the human cause or what portion of it is if you don't know how much natural variation there is and mm. what's causing that. Exactly. So it's impossible to do what they were doing. But you see, it allowed them to eliminate most of the variables that were actually causing climate change, like the sun. Mm. 
like water vapor because water vapor is 95% of the greenhouse gases. It's by far the most important greenhouse gas. But the IPCC say, yes, oh yeah, humans produce a little bit of water vapor, but the amount they produce is, is insignificant. Therefore, we'll assume that water vapor is constant. We don't have to look at it. But the truth is water vapor varies enormously from year to year. And even a 2% variation will give you more climate change than all of the CO2 uh, uh, impact combined. Yeah, what about the volcanoes? Well, the volcano is another of the myths. Uh, okay. Volcanoes erupt. There's about 10,000 of them active. Yes, they affect climate, but mostly by putting particles of dust into the atmosphere where they block the sunlight, another dimming effect. Yeah. The volcanoes only affect the climate um, for about uh, nine years is detectable in the record. And I know a, a lot about this because we did a, a world conference on uh, Tambora, the biggest eruption in the last few thousand years. And, and um, uh, But the dust falls out of the atmosphere very quickly. Only volcanoes that erupt at the equator erupt vertically and put that dust into the stratosphere actually affect the global climate. The CO2 from, from volcanoes from the cone, that is the crater, is a very small amount of the total amount in the atmosphere. Mm. But what you're not being told is that CO2 is leaking out of the earth for thousands of kilometers around a volcano. Yeah. For uh, And they've shown that studies done with Mount Etna and the, vo the Hawaiian volcanoes, for example. You can get readings of 500, six, uh, sorry, uh, of 6,000 parts per million above ground level all around the Mauna Loa volcano. Mm. So what do they do? They put a CO2 detector right on the volcano. Yeah, right. I've heard about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Okay. I manipulate the data. Yeah, but but if we have, uh, let's say we have established a case of criminality here, that we always have to go to the motives. And my first uh, wonder here is if the Club of Rome is set up by the oil people, Rockefeller and stuff, why would they let the oligarchs associated with it uh, then create uh, an ideology that, for all intents and purposes, would hurt, especially their industry, oil and coal. Well, it, it doesn't hurt them, and one of the this is this is another of the great myths. The oligarchs and the wealthy people benefit from war. Yeah. If, if you look at, at the Rothschilds, where they they were financing both sides of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, this is a historic fact. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so, no, it, that's simply not the case. And of course, what you also see is who are the people that are pushing uh, one world government. George Soros is a perfect example. Mm. And, and of course, Ted Turner is another example. Um, why these multi-billionaires get in, involved into this? Uh, they think they're saving the planet, or I don't know what the motive is. Oh, okay. So, so, so they may actually be led astray themselves. Um, I'm not sure whether it's led astray or whether there's um, uh, some sort of inner, uh, you know, I want I want to do something that's significant. I want to leave a mark. I want to make my name for myself. Yeah, because even if we can't pretend to be in other people's heads, we have to ask the question because the general public, yeah. the first thing they ask when they start realize something is fishy here is why? Why would they do it? Yeah. I, I think the simple answer is control, power. 
I think that's what it's all about. Mm. And and if you if you could, this is why they chose the global warming because you see one of the things, um, and this leads me around to that other point I wanted to get to, um, uh, the um, the more uh, the, the issue affects everybody, the more you can get uh, you can argue for a global governance as Strong was doing, but you can also transcend nationalism. And of course, um, that is what. And they're for uh, globalists, huh? Globalists, exactly. Like TPP and all that stuff. Yes, exactly. Now, no accountability. Yeah, I want to introduce another whole idea to you because this is very much a part of it. And this is part of a presentation I made in Phoenix, Arizona mm-hmm. a year ago. Um, the American Revolution. And and uh, Obama ran around the world saying, talking about American exceptionalism and telling people that it was the claim that Americans believe they were superior to everybody else. Mm-hmm. That's not what it's about at all. It's about uh, the fact that the American political system is unique. And a lot of people make the mistake of saying America is a democracy. No. It isn't. It's it a chose republic. Not, it's a republic. Exactly. And therefore, a republic is always answerable to the people and the individual. And one of the things that American accept- except if you corrupt the law. Ah, that, but that's why this control and this Supreme Court thing that's going on now is so critical to it all. Mm. You see Poland right now, where they're trying to the the, pre- the, the uh, Poland's trying to control the judiciary, and and it's a fatal mistake. Hmm. You must have a completely independent judiciary. And the founding fathers knew that. But you see, what's happened around the world and what's going on in America's part of it is the final phase of the American Revolution was they got free speech, which no other country has. Hmm. And I, I would never have been charged with my crimes in America. Yeah, you have to tell us that before you leave, too. Yeah, okay, I will the do court that. case. And, right, and then... Um, then they got the private ownership of land. I mean, Canadians think they own the land they uh, live on. They don't. It's called crown land. And the government under the law can take it back at any time they want. Mm. You go to Britain, where one third of England is controlled by five people. And two of them are the Queen and Prince Philip, or, or Prince yep. Charles. If they wanted to, they could uh, take over any time. It's not like oh, our, yeah. in Norway; it's different. In Norway, the royalty, yep. the monarchy, is actually uh, accountable to the government. But in Britain, yeah, it's not like that. Exactly, because you, you know you've learned your lessons. But but anyway, the final uh, control is, of course, through the mainstream media. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that um, people, uh, what what's happening is that for the first time in history, access to information is available to the ordinary citizen. Yep. Power elite always controlled information. Yeah. And I want to read you a poem mm-hmm. to illustrate my point. This is Please from do. 1782. Mm-hmm. And I want you to think about what's happening in Europe with the French Revolution, with America, the American Revolution. This is a poem by an Englishman, William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. The title of the poem is Progress of Error. How shall I speak of thee or thy power address, thou God of our idolatry, the press? By thee, religion, liberty, and laws exert their influence and advance their cause. 
by the worst plagues than Pharaoh's land befell, diffused, make earth the vestibule of hell. Thou fountain at which drink the good and wise, thou ever bubbling spring of endless lies, like Eden's dead probationary tree, knowledge of good and evil is from thee. <laughs> so what's going on now is the final phase of the American Revolution, right. and that's why Trump, with his tweeting, is bypassing. Could actually win over yes. millions of dollars from the Hillary campaign. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. Now, that's also happened in Britain, of course, you can see because the Brexit thing. Yep. And, and the, the power elite in London wanted to stay in Europe because they were making money off of it and controlling it. But the people outside, the ordinary people outside of London said, no, we want control of our, our country and our people and our laws back again. That's why they're, they're so often smearing Jeremy Corbyn, yep. because they know that if he takes over, the globalists yep. will be on the run. Yep. And that can't just can't happen. That's why they can't allow them to leave uh, EU either. Yep. They will lose control. So what you're seeing, yeah. 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 So this this as I said, this is all part of the what's going on. And of course people are starting to realize a very basic truth which you can get from statistics mm -hmm. which is called degrees of freedom. Mm. And degrees of freedom is that uh, uh, as you get more data, uh, you're limited in what you can do with it. And if you think about uh, as an individual, you have c virtually total, total control of your freedom, theoretically. But if you join up with somebody else, what you're saying is you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of that freedom in return for other more important rewards. Yep. But the minute you start to add three, four, five people, then you lose your control, you lose your freedom. That's why Trump is going around, for example, what Trump is going to do with the North American Free Trade Agreement is he's going to break it up. He's going to say, I'm going to have a deal with Canada and a deal with Mexico, because as it is now, the two of them can end play me in the middle. Mm. That's why he got out of the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Because yeah, but I heard he's uh, in, in new negotiations of a revised version or something. Pretty scary. Oh, but we'll see if this, this comes to fruition. Yeah, but, but basically what Trump will do, and that's why saying America first, mm. if, if he thinks that uh, there's benefit for America, he'll do it. But if he doesn't... Yeah, but that's superstitious that he actually, actually believes it and that he is free at liberty to actually implement it. Uh, some think he's under siege, but it's very good signs that he went his own way with North Korea, with, with Putin. So we'll see if he if he he has the power to do it, then he ought to do it before his term is up. Power is one thing. Shakespeare said it's one thing to have power of a giant; it's another thing to use it. Um, yeah. And and of course, Trump, in my view. Trump, well, he, he is what Thomas Jefferson said, don't ever elect someone that wants to be your president. <laughs> Trump didn't want to be the president. Oh, he didn't right. want it. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want the job. Yeah. He talked about it for two previous or three previous elections, and he finally realized that the way Obama was taking America yep. was, was just... Uh, I, I think he decided for sure uh, at the event of the press club when they, Obama and the others made fun of him because you could see he was pretty this hour so he probably was thinking then i okay we'll see 
Oh, see, well, you know. I, I don't disagree with that. But anyway, so yeah. that's that. Court case, uh, uh, Timothy. Yeah, I think from my point of view, you have to put all of this into the mix of what's going on. And that's why with Trump getting in and pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement has such important implications for the whole climate thing. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, uh, they tried to form a committee uh, through the EPA uh, where they want to have it called the Red Team and the Blue Team. And um, I'm opposed to that. And I said so. Like uh, Democrats and Republicans? Well, yeah, well, yeah like the, the having the people in favor of human-caused global warming and the ones to oppose to it. No, just study climate change. Yeah. You don't need to start creating vision. No, science is, is, is not supposed to be teams. You're supposed it, to... You're supposed to have differences and then work them exactly, out. Exactly, exactly. So uh, anyway, just to, to get back to the trial. Uh, my, my yeah, because this is a part of what we talk about, censorship, right? You can't have free information. I agree with you. Internet has turned upside down. That's why I'm trying yep. to quench free information internet. And that's the fact that you and me are talking now. It's a part of that complete yes. revolution. I, I agree. Now, right. the, the, the court case is an important part okay. of that because it's censorship. Yes. Right? So explain everything to us. Well, one of the things that the law, of course, is designed to protect people. And one of the contradictions that we've got in our society is that you make rules to make things work. But a group will get together and say, we're going to work to rule. In other words, they're telling you we're going to make it not work. And this is the problem with everything. It's like with nuclear power, there's always two sides to the sword, mm. right? And, and by the way, I love to point out to people that the anagram of the word nuclear is unclear. <laughs> okay. And, and you and before that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. So I, when, I, when I got into studying climate, I foolishly thought that, oh, here's a nice quiet area yeah. and of course it exploded yeah. in my face <laughs> but i was as opposed to the to the global cooling claims when i got in because I looked at the long-term record and said, no, this is well within natural variability. There's nothing unusual going on here, and it will start to warm. Well, of course, then in 1980, it started to warm. But the difference was then it got grabbed for a political agenda, and I was as opposed to it for the same scientific reasons as I was to the cooling. Mm. But now I ran afoul of the, of the political agenda. And I started writing articles and publishing and speaking out, and uh, it got it drew attention. And um, there is a, a lawyer on the west coast of Canada here um, who has brought lawsuits against many of the so-called global warming skeptics, mm. and I happen to be one of them. Just like harassment, right? Yeah, or using the law for harassing or silencing mm. people, mm. because uh, I mean, just the fact. To give you an idea how, how uh, people reacted, just getting a letter from a lawyer scares people because they know it's going to cost them money to hire a lawyer to defend themselves. Yeah, yeah. And people think a letter from a lawyer is the law. No, it isn't. It's a letter from a lawyer, nothing else. But I had a solicitor friend, a lawyer friend in England, and he used this. He had a letter which he used to send for people, and the letter said, Dear Sir, such and such has come to our attention, and if you don't deal with it immediately, we will do things that will astonish you. Hmm. Right? Yeah, that's the message. I mean, the veiled threat of that, and yet it's not a threat. But this is, the, this is how the law has become misused. Hmm. So anyway, 
Of course, in Canada, this lawyer in in uh, British Columbia here um, said, oh, "Okay, look, I'll silence the guy." He filed a lawsuit against me, and he filed a lawsuit against me because I wrote an article about the fellow who chaired the founding meeting of the IPCC. And uh, my wife and I sat down and thought about it and said, no, we can't afford a lawyer. We can't afford to defend ourselves. So I withdrew the article. Hmm. And the lawyer then forced the journal that published my article to write an apology that he had written. Because, see, they don't just sue me. They sue the uh, the journal that published or, or the yeah. radio that reported. Yeah, they want to make you untouchable. Yes, Anyway, um, so then I, so we, that first lawsuit disappeared, but within a few months. And that was used against you. Look. Yes. Look, exactly. we are winning, they are losing. We are talking exactly. the truth. Yeah. All right. So when we got the second lawsuit, my wife and I sat down and said, we're not going to be bullied anymore. We're going to fight. Because they didn't have the decency to give up when they were oh, no. ahead. No, because they I had to, you know. Put that yeah, but you one. know why? Because I didn't shut up, Al. Oh, right. That's okay, it didn't work. Yeah. yeah it didn't work. Mm. And 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 uh, my wife and I sat down. Now, sadly, before um, uh, we were, were uh, we got help uh, or realized that we could get help, we'd spend all our savings. But we knew that. We knew what we were getting into. And this is another of the problems. You see, it isn't just the individual. It's the family. Yeah. The attacks on, on the family. And on top of this, they, they drive you bankrupt oh. while they smear you of being yep. in the, on the payroll of these powerful. Yeah, exactly. Mm. All, the, all the personal attacks and so on. So anyway, I, uh, I got uh, a PayPal site on my website that got, helped me with the legal funds. I have so far, it's cost me $600,000 in legal bills Jesus. to send myself. That's, a, that's only with the first lawsuit. And um, now I've got the appeal because I won that first lawsuit because the judge said, no, you are not defamed. And by the way, the guy that brought the lawsuit, all three of them that brought the lawsuit, McBean, Andrew Weaver and Michael Mann, the hockey stick guy, all three of them are members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. They're all members of the United Nations. And what was the accusation against you? Defamation. Did I Who were you defaming, according to yeah, that? Yeah, because, because I was saying that what they were saying wasn't true. Oh, right. So then it's personal. Yeah. It's not about the data. It's about you're right. insulting us and shaming us. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. And they are scientists. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the judge uh, agreed with you? The judge ruled. Um, in fact, he, he didn't even make a ruling. He just said, I dismissed the case. Oh, he just dismissed. So the first case went away, but still six hundred thousand. Six hundred thousand. Now I've got to I've got to fight the appeal, and that's going to cost me more money. And I've got the second case, Michael Mann case, to deal with, and we're trying to get that into court now. Could you tell us about that case? Yes. Well, what's going on there? Michael Mann, of course, as you know, did the trick to rewriting history. Mm -hmm. See, they had this problem, uh, they, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. My friend Hubert Lamb had produced a graph that showed that there was a very warm period around a thousand years ago when the Vikings were sailing in Greenland, as you mentioned. And by the way, they were sailing in, in Arctic waters yep. in northern Canada that are now permanent yep. pack ice. You found, uh, and there are, there are Viking settlements in northern Quebec that nobody, know, very few people know about. We know they know about the ones in Newfoundland. Right, right. But anyway, 
Anyway, um, the, this graph that Lamb produced showed this warm period when it was two degrees Celsius warmer, at least, than it is today. Mm. And it showed a very cold period around 1680. And, and uh, um, That's when they disappeared from Greenland. Yes. It became too cold. It was yeah. a mini ice age. Exactly. Yeah. And there, and there was uh, the bishop from Iceland tried to get there because he said no bishop's been to Greenland for 50 years. He finally got there and found the colony had virtually collapsed. Abandoned, yeah. So there's always yeah, been high speculation. In Bergen, in my yeah. hometown, they were sitting in the 1600s yeah. discussing in the pubs what happened to our brethren in Iceland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so so and anyway, um, this graph was a problem for them because they were going around saying it's warmer now than it's ever been. But here was this graph that showed that it wasn't. So, um, uh, and you can check with this person as well, Professor David Deming, D-E-M-I-N-G. Hmm. And it, he, he gave this evidence in testimony to a congressional hearing. So it's been given under oath. But he wrote an article in Science, which was um, sort of basically supporting the or appear to support the anthropogenic global warming issue and he got an email from one of the people that were supporting that and um let, let me see if i can pull this up just a minute mm -hmm. i'll try and get this for you as quickly as i can okay let me let me correct something i just said while you're doing yeah. that i said uh, uh, they were discussing what happened with the people in iceland i meant greenland of greenland, course yes. and iceland has always been settlement yeah. well yes but but even there there was a, a big out migration out of iceland yeah it was yeah. hard yeah it was very hard they were starving they had to yeah. get help from here okay so here's what the, the email that professor deming got then he gave this as an evidence mm -hmm. as i said to, to the, the um congressional hearing yep. he said uh, with Professor Deming revealed the evidence in the following letter to Science. With the publication of the article in Science, that's his publication, in 1995, I gained significant credibility in the community of scientists working on climate change. They thought I was one of them, someone who would pervert science in the surface of social and political causes. Mm. So one of them let his guard down. A major person working in the area of climate change and global warming sent me an astonishing email that said, we have to get rid of the medieval warm period. Hmm. Now, that was from somebody... That's directly falsifying data. That's more than just yes. misrepresenting it. Oh, totally rewriting the climate history. Hmm. And that's what the hockey stick did. This is what the Nazis did. Yeah. Change history. Yeah. According to our agenda. Yeah. Soviets did it too. Yeah, and of course they do that, rewrite history. Mm. In fact, we talked about Patrick Moore with the Greenpeace thing earlier in the Marxist takeover. Yeah. I, I, about a month ago, I said, Patrick, we've got proof now that it was Marxist. And he said, why? I said, because they've rewritten you out of the history. <laughs> You're not in Greenpeace's history anymore. Right. You don't exist. Yeah. But but anyway, um, uh, so this, this whole idea of of rewriting history and the hockey stick. So I gave a presentation in Winnipeg, Canada, a slide presentation or PowerPoint to the public, showed talking about climate change, showed what had happened with the hockey stick. And in an interview afterwards, the person interviewing me said, well, you know, what do you think about Michael Mann? 
And as you've, if you found out already, I liked uh, a sense of humor, I think, is absolutely critical to the human condition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, e and, uh, let, let me just say, uh, I think it was Walpole who said it. Yeah. The world is a tragedy to those who feel and a comedy to those who think. Exactly. And what you see is they have no sense of humor at all. Um, so and, and anyway, um, anyway, what happened was that um, in the interview afterwards, the interviewer said to me, well, what do you think about Michael Mann? And I flippantly said, well, he's at Penn State, but maybe he should be at State Penn. And <laughs> with, within 12 hours, I got another lawsuit. And that oh, was for insulting him. Oh, sorry? For insulting him, right? Yeah, oh, defamation. The, yeah, defamation. But you're a satiricist, right? Oh. That's your work to say stuff like that. Well, I think that satire is the best form of deflating things. Right. I, I think it's a superb form of humor. I mean, it was an innocent sentence. Oh, Everybody understands that was humor. Sure. But uh, it anyway. was a wordplay, goddammit. <laughs> yes. And what happened was that um, the lawsuit was filed in British Columbia courts by an American from Pennsylvania for an event that occurred in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Jesus. And this is another thing that goes on. It's called jurisdictional shopping. You right. go around till you find a jurisdiction that will case, bring in yeah. the verdict that you want. Right, right. And again, it's a complete misuse of the law, but that, that's what's happening. So anyway, Michael Mann brought his lawsuit. I... I, we were already fighting these lawsuits, and of course, the Michael Mann one was part of them. I was scheduled to go for trial on July, uh, or sorry, January the 20th of 2017, about a month before the trial. And by now, the case had been dragging on for six years, but a month before the trial. And cost you daily, right? Yeah. Uh, Drain your resources. Yeah. And by the time that, uh, uh, about a month before the trial, Mann and his lawyer asked for an adjournment. Okay. And of course, I said, well, why do they need an adjournment? They've had six years to prepare. That's so suspicious. Yes. Well, the problem is that in Canada, the courts always grant an adjournment before the trial begins with the reasonable assumption that if you can settle the case out of court, you can save a whole lot of court time and money. Yeah. So uh, we really had no choice but to accept the adjournment. Mm -hmm. We did it on the condition that he produced the documents that we were looking for, which was the computer code which he used to create the hockey stick And all the data, because okay, he provided... Okay, so, so in a way, you were just asking for evidence, right? Yes. And that's your right. Well, it's not just my right, it's the right of all science. Because, yeah. you see, one of the most important tests in science is what is called reproducible results. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But now it's not science, now it's law. Yes. And it was your right in the case to oh, make well, demand it, right? Okay, but, but what had happened in the meantime... Michael Mann had another case brought against him by Ken Cuccinelli, who was the attorney general of the state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And the state of Virginia sued Michael Mann at Penn State and said, look, you've produced data using the taxpayer's money that has been used as the basis for policy that is causing the world unnecessarily trillions of dollars. Mm. We think you should therefore produce the data 
of how you did that. Right. Man went to court and the court ruled he didn't have to produce it because it was his intellectual property. Oh my God. So so trillions of dollars are going into the pockets of someone. Yep. And it's a waste. Yep. And it's a waste. And he can get away with the reasons for it. Yeah. Belongs to is my possession, my personal possession. That sounds like a corrupt court uh, decision. Well, of course, but but you see now what he's doing is, and I I don't know this for certain, but it's almost certain, uh, almost sure, that he's going to argue in the Canadian court that this American court ruling that it's his intellectual property, so he doesn't have to give it up. Mm. That's what he'll use. And, and uh, of course, then, as you say, it's a legal issue at that point because we'll, say, we'll come back and say, well, look, we need those documents to prove that we didn't defame you. So how can you bring a lawsuit? Has there been any decision here? Sorry? Has there been any decision about no, this? No, as I said, because he adjourned the case. And we're now trying to get it back into court. Oh. But here's the other problem in Canada. You can bring a lawsuit against somebody and then just decide to drop it. And the only per thing the person can do is, is sue you for costs. Right. But that's another huge legal cost. Yeah. And then even if you win the case, they don't. You, how do you get the money? Well, so, uh, so, I'm, I'm sure he has resources. Uh, well, his... but even if he had resources, you, what, what are going to spend the next 20 years trying to get it? But, but have you uh, gotten help from somewhere? I, I got help from the public after I put the pay, like, PayPal site. So you had to rely on crowdfunding? Yeah, no, I didn't go to crowdfunding because that wasn't available at the time. The crowdfunding and go to me fund, just donations. And here's Do you still need it, by the way? Sorry? Do you still need uh, it? Well, no, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. But okay. One of the things that it, it pleased me about the monies, which gave me hope about the humans, because you start, you know. Yeah, you get, of course. So yes. um, but I got money from a lot of people who said, look, we don't totally agree with you, but you got the right to say it. Right. They recognized right, right. it was Voltaire, right? Yeah, exactly. I will fight against what you're saying, but I will also fight to death for your right, right to, say to say it. Yeah, by the way, in the context of what we're talking about, Voltaire never said that. Who was it? Do then? you know where that came? No. Well, where it came from, I've forgotten the name of the woman, but the woman wrote for Reader's Digest, mm -hmm. and of course they do these little. Yeah. synopsis stories of things in history they start memes yes. yes in the old days yes and so she was asked to uh, summarize voltaire's ideas she's the one that said <laughs> uh you know yeah that, that right. phrase yeah, yeah yeah now it it does represent what voltaire thought but he never actually said it ah i see okay so the quote itself is kind yes. of a rephrasing of, yeah, yeah. Well, and and this is the same thing i mean you see quotes everywhere oh it's attributed to churchill or to and always oh, oh, churchill or, or, or jefferson <laughs> Yeah, Jefferson or, or Mark, Twain. Twain. Mark Twain. Those yeah. three guys yeah, yeah. have probably been made 50% of those <laughs> yeah. quotes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, so now, you got help from the public. Yeah, now back to the funding. Um, yeah. Uh, and I don't think, well, I, it's already out there, but um, I the money I got from the public didn't even come close. I mean, it helped a lot. Oh. I believe the total amount I got was about $200,000. But when you're looking at, uh, I mean, just going to court was $400,000. Uh, but anyway, one day my lawyer got a call from a gentleman who was 
very concerned about what was going on. He is an expert in computer modeling, so he knew exactly what was going on. Mm. And he he um, he said, Michael Manz. The only thing he ever said to me was that uh, personally was Michael Manz a charlatan, and he's got to be exposed. Mm. And um, uh, he, uh, I said, look, I don't want to deal with any of the money. The PayPal money, for example, goes directly through to my lawyer. It doesn't go mm. to me at all. And I said, I prefer you deal directly with my lawyer. So he did that. And uh, he has so far funded me to the tune of 1.1 million. So this is a classical wealthy philanthropist. Then, who... Yes. Mm. Uh, he made his money in hedge funds. Okay, and, so you even know about this. Uh, okay. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, we've we've never attempted to hide it. There's no attempt. And he's not an oil guy, then, if it's in hedge funds. No, he's he's a hedge fund uh, guy, and as I said, he's a computer guy. He's actually retired now, and I I know he's worth. It. No, but this is nice. This is excellent. It's their right oh, yeah. to donate as much as it's the poor man's right. So that has kind of yeah. saved you with the costs then. Yeah, but that's you see that's another part of the issue we talked about earlier. Why is money from one source directed and 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 uh, you know uh, problematic, whereas money from government yeah. or from Greenpeace or from anybody else not directed? Money is money, especially if it's tied up to intentions. But here, here's the key thing, and the way I deal with this with the public is to say it doesn't matter who funds you. If your science doesn't no. hold up to investigation, it doesn't matter where the money came from. No. That's like uh, science used to be, right? Yeah. Or the ideal of it, at least. Yeah, the idea of it, yes. Yeah. So, so, um, But they have people who are financing them too, oh. don't they? Mon and those guys? Oh, yes. They, so they, they can afford, uh, because otherwise, in, in a system like this, the more money you have, yeah. the easier it is to be right, because you can always force your will. Yes. But uh, are these guys uh, feeling the costs too? or? Well, you know, I mean, it's like with the guy that funded me. I mean, 1.1 1, 1. 1 million sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. But let me put it in this context. I remember the year that there was a big shout in the media. Oh, what a great guy Bill Gates is. He gave $38 million to the university that he'd never even graduated from. Mm -hmm. And then I looked it up and I discovered that Bill Gates made $38 million in 12 minutes. Yeah, everything is relative. Right? Yeah. So suddenly you get a perspective yep, yep, yep. because our minds can't get around a, no. a million, let alone a billion. No, no, but I think it's nice that uh, that happened because yes. now we can, oh, I agree. I agree. we can get a fairer. Yeah. And what's the status now of all these three court cases? Well, the first is dismissed that we know. Well, the, the, here's the issue. Um, I'm dealing with the appeal because um, Andrew Weaver, who brought that case, was a professor at the University of, of Victoria. He was the computer modeler expert on four of the IPCC reports, the 1995, the 2001, 2007, and 2013 reports. Mm. He um, quit the university and ran for politics and he is now the leader of the green party in british columbia mm. and of course our argument in the courts was um the uh, it's the misuse of science for a political agenda that's really what the issue is about 
and and uh, uh, and to give you an idea of, of what what you're confronting is that in the court case and this is already it was already in the public record but in a different context we showed photographs of weaver standing in front of a wall in his office covered with clippings and photographs and it's labeled the wall of hate and uh, the wall he put up to put up all of the things that were said about him because he was trying to save the planet and he he wanted Jesus, to sounds like a psychopath yeah oh uh, mm. I, I i get another lawsuit anyway well, i'm just saying it sounds like one you can say yes to that well exactly yes and 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 um, so so this this is uh, i mean who has a wall of hate on their office right. no matter what going You're pretty obsessed huh yeah but anyway so i've got to, i've got to deal with that case And then, and then the Michael Mann case. We hope to get into the court uh, before the summer is out. Um, I, uh, if if he withdraws, I've already got agreement from the funders that we will start a massive international PR campaign yeah. to expose what he did and, and how he did it. Good. So he can't withdraw. The only yeah. other option then is to deliver, but he can't do that either, can he? No. Then he's then he's screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Then he's screwed either way. Yes. He should actually withdraw. That would be the best bet for him because he can always try to talk back. Well, of course, this is the point. They get to the point where they have to make decisions, yeah. which is the biggest crime or biggest sin to be da- labeled with. Exactly. He's between a rock and a hard place. Uh, yeah. Well, that was that was the story with, with it when I mentioned the Senator Worth story. Uh-huh. He had to decide, is the damage done by that original story Uh, more problem or the cover up or or the cover up yes exactly Mm -hmm. yeah interesting (laughs) yeah well i do wish you well with the whole thing whenever i mean this is dragging out and dragging up but meanwhile you're not silenced right so you you're you're talking like you do today and you're writing books let's let's end it with you presenting your bibliography here fine what books should uh, people get from you I, i guess your popular books Well, I've got two about the climate issue. Um, yep. uh, I've written textbooks on climate as well. But Thomas, show me your books, but I can't remember the titles. He okay, the, te- the, the, the well, the first one I wrote was I didn't write for a long time because I knew the public didn't understand the issue. But mm. when I wrote it, I knew that the, immediately the academics would find one little fault and throw the whole thing out. Yeah. And, the fallacy and, of the footnote. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that that one has got uh, footnotes, citations, references, everything else, mm-hmm. and it's called the deliberate corruption of climate science. Now, um, hang on a second. Where's the other one? And the critics loves your books. Well, apparently they do. Yes, but uh, this is a measure of the difficulty because, like, a lawyer read that book i just mentioned to you and he said um he said it was a very very good book but it was a hard slog and this is a guy that has some ideas about what was going on mm. so what i did was um i brought out a second book called human caused global warming the biggest deception in history that's a dumb dumb version then Yes, and and um, it doesn't have the, the footnotes and, and the citations and so on because it was deliberately designed as a piece of investigative journalism because the subtitle for it is The Why, What, Where, When, and How It Was Achieved. Mm. So it, it was done as investigative journalism so people could pick it up and just get a general overview of what was done, why it was done, and how it was done. And and um, that that's the book that... 
I recommend for most people. Hmm. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're going to give uh, also the addresses, website addresses people can find your stuff on. All right. Uh, anything you want to add before we end this? Do you think we covered most fields? I think we, I really appreciate the amount of time. And I think we got a pretty good uh, sense of what went on and how it was done and so on. But um, here's the thing that bothers me at the end of all of this. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of Skype interviews with school children doing projects on global warming because i'm i'm the sort of go-to skeptic who will answer all their questions yeah when they're gonna yeah. Yeah, they get the task of getting the other side yeah. then they come to you yeah yeah and and, I and i and i'm also willing to help them because i'm so committed to education That's nice. uh, uh, but anyway this i did a group out of colorado last summer and at the end of it one of them said um would you do it do it again hmm Would you do what you did again? And I mean, it just, that was like a bullet between my eyes. And I said, I said, you know, I've never thought about it. And I said, uh, I, 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 let me, give me a minute. And I, my answer was, look, I'm in, in what I'm in now and I'll see it through to the end because I do not believe you should start things and not finish them. Mm. And if you're not going to finish, don't start. You're better off. Uh, but anyway, I said, the answer to your question your actual question is no i probably wouldn't do it again knowing what it's cost me hmm. um and what it's cost my family uh, and i said we, we've all discussed it we're nobody's complaining my children and my wife because we knew what we were getting into but i could have uh, i'm not stupid i could have made a whole pile of money hmm. i could have made a lot of money uh but you know Things are more important than money. And this isn't exceptional for you, right? It's been high costs all over the place for oh, many soothsayers. It's, yeah, but it's high, it's high cost for anybody that questions anything to say. That's mm. the problem. Yeah. That's why I'm making these comments. What I'm saying is, look, be prepared, but don't let that deter you. Mm. Yeah. It applies all over the board. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In today's society, you can't go against the power without being uh, marked at least. And and know, know exactly what you're doing and what you're getting into mm. and be very, very careful of those that say they support you. I, 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 let me put it in terms that I've come to understand. It's better the bigot in front of me than the liberal behind me. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. Because I know where the bigot's coming from. I can deal with that. Yeah. yeah. But the liberal's behind me patting my back and he's got a knife up his sleeve. Yeah, corporate Democrats. They, they exactly. work for the man, but they pretend you're your, your friend. Exactly. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, we all know the costs. Look at uh, Assange. Look at Snowden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I hope, uh, you know, it's a slow oil tanker to turn around. So I hope yeah. that we gave you a mic today can contribute to help this. And, and we encourage everyone to... Not just buy your books, but also look up the sources, look up the facts, look up what's been claimed and see for yourself. Yeah, That's the best way to get a paradigm expansion is to actually not just listen to opinions, but also fact check them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And kudos to you 
for you know uh, riding off the storm and fil- fulfilling what you started out thank you uh, at least the what was your posterity will thank you if nothing else <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah yeah, yeah. Um, posthumous yeah. after the fact yeah, yeah. It's, uh, all real educators are, are good with that I know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah anyway al i thank you for allowing this wide-ranging discussion but yeah. i for for me, uh, uh, so much of it is about the context of this event. In and of itself, it's problematic and, and worthy, but but it needs the context as we were able to discuss today. And I think yeah. that that's what what the value of your program is. You you say, okay, well, here's this issue, and let let me uh, let me dig into it and mm. let's find out the truth. By exactly. the way, the, the the documentary I made with Martin Durkin, the Great Global Warming Swindle, mm. that's how he makes his documentaries. He looks at an issue. And he says, okay, here's what is out in the media and the public, but mm. what's the other side of the story? Right. And, of course, there's there's never – Just follow the data, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I'm more in favor of that than following sites. Yeah. I won't have – tomorrow I won't have on, like, a, a propagator for that. No. Because it's not – because it's the same with the media. Media is supposed to be objective yeah. but not neutral. And And the difference there is that – and the same with politicians. The difference there is that – being neutral means that, like, say, a ball game. Who won? I don't know. Yeah. Could be this guy, could be that guy. I'm neutral, right? No. <laughs> yeah. Objective means that you're going to report the facts no matter where yeah. they lead you, even if they hurt your own pet courses. Exactly. That's being objective. That's what journalists used to be about. Yeah. Nothing like that. Anymore. By the way, one one thing I'm very proud of was that, um, oh, I mean, what, two years ago now, maybe even three, mm. a fellow contacted me from Romania and um, he'd come across something. I I'd read written. about that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Tell us. And and so we ended up doing uh, seven one-hour Skype programs and uh, he's put it out all through. And he's reaching out, right? Oh, yeah. And, and it's being picked up in a lot of the old Soviet satellite uh, nice, nations nice. Uh, because what happened there, and we laughed about this, the guy and I, I said, I said, they, um, the communist leaders became Democrats overnight and continued in power. And he said, he said well, that, that was the problem. He said, we were getting only what they were telling us, and it was all the United Nations story. So uh, that's why. Well, it, that's, it's still bureaucracy. That's what you get. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, the yeah. rule by the administrators. Yeah. And it's killing yeah. the world, either state or corporate. It's the same beast. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Al. I appreciate this opportunity. Yep. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you, Al. And I'm ready to answer any questions anytime, as you can tell. Cool. Or we may have you back. No problem. Okay. We're going to have a Corbin before that. Yeah. Okay. And we'll say hello to Piers for me. Yep. We'll do that. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's the show for today. As a postscript, I'd like to add a few comments. First of all, remember that if you've been listening to this and you are very skeptical to the assertions that Dr. Ball has been making, because maybe you were like me, I used to think this isn't even a dispute. Because I've been aware of climate change for a very long time, I was pretty young when, when it dawned upon me. 
that's what's going on. But of course, nobody is disputing climate change. That's a smear argument done by the proponents. The real question is whether it's anthropogenic, that is, if it's us human beings who are the main cause. And I was convinced of that, but of course, like most of you listening to this, I have no idea. I'm not a climate scientist. I haven't been working with the data. I hadn't even looked into it and tried to determine what's going on in, as far as those who's working with that research goes. Now I have, and after been looking into it, it seems more likely to me that it is the skeptics in this case who are correct, that it is larger causations in play than us little ants on the globe. But of course, again, you cannot afford to be emotional and extremistic about this. If you reject this out of hand, is you if you dismiss this, then you have been buying into ideology. And you're not it's not truth and facts you're concerned about. It's emotions and identification. And fine, do that if that's what you prefer, but then you're not a part of this conversation because we are appealing to thinking people truth-seeking people, fact-based people, not based upon authorities. Oh, it goes against what the church says, so burn burn the heretic, right? That's most people's. And, you know, people can't fathom. They're, they're thinking, no, they, these, this has to be cooks, or everybody says it is, all scientists says it is, the whole system, the state, even corporations, even oil companies, they're paying for CO2 fees, and it's a part of the big political global game. So this can't be real, right? That's how people think. But again, that's emotionally based. And are you really believing that society has never been wrong about anything? Even the global society, it happens all the time. We develop all the time. We revise all the time. If you lived in, in the 30s in Germany, it would be commonplace to think that Jews are subhuman, for example. And if you don't agree with that today, then you admit that a whole country or a whole range of, of countries, states, can be wrong. Uh, it's ideology. And in this case, we have to look at who's actually working with this. And we have to look at what their arguments are and what the facts they're basing those arguments are. And the first thing you'll notice, it's not a consensus. First of all, it doesn't matter if... A psychology professor is in favor or critical to climate change because he's not researching this. So it's not even about what academics believe. It's not about what the state, the nation believes. It's not what the private companies believe. It's certainly not what politicians believe. And they're deciding the policies, right? So, so we live in a society where CO2 belief is official policy. Well, it has nothing to do with facts. It's just a policy decided by politicians for whatever reasons. Sometimes those reasons are good, sometimes not so good, even corrupt. But we have to look at who is actually working in the field or are competent in the field. And there's no consensus there. In fact, it, it looks like there's still a majority being skeptical, although they don't have an outlet or a voice or paid. And it's just a matter of time before they will be wiped out by the gradual, uh, you know, people retiring, new people coming in and who's controlling the recruitment of the new ones, that's the proponents. So it may happen that at some point, who knows how many years, 
it's going to be a consensus or a majority who is for CO2 belief. But again, then it's based upon the system. It's like the Christian church was very diverse in the beginning, and at some point they cleaned up and they purged. It can happen with anything. It can happen with a sports team, and it can happen in in academia and in science. And, and when that happens, bye-bye true science. So let's hope at least that even if many believers are entering the field, I mean, young people, they are grown up with this, right? And you can't really blame them for believing what they're told. But you can blame them if they look into the facts and they're either too stupid or incompetent to verify the facts or they don't dare speak out. Though most of us probably in their shoes would do the same because who is really willing to make problems in their own life because of truth? Unfortunately, not too many. And most people who work in the field have it as a career. It's not as if it's a philosophical truth exploration that's driving them. So it's a complex matter. If you really want to know the facts, you have to look into it yourself. And you have to listen to arguments from all sides. But we are not going to cover all sides because the proponents have 99% of the media already. We're going to give voice to the few critics, some of them. And then you have better sources to make a better, more accurate judgment call about this matter. Now, for me, it's pretty simple. Mankind are still very insignificant in this huge cosmos. And first of all, believing that we can alter the globe that easily, it's a fishy point. And second, that we have the competence to know the incredibly complex ecosystem is tantamount to megalomania. But that's how modern society works. We think we know everything. We, we, we screw up uh, our food supplies with GMO and whatnot and geoengineer, we we alter the weather, everything and anything, with this arrogant, fanatical, naive belief that, oh yeah, we know everything today. That's what they've been thinking all the time. They thought it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, 50 years ago, 80 years ago. And this arrogance, I mean, you only need to know basic history to know that, oh, we've never known what's going on. The next generations will always correct us. And still, I'm not even protesting that belief as much as I'm protesting that we act upon it. That's the real madness. There will always be megalomaniacs and fanatics, but organizing society based upon such a fallacy, that's... No, there has to be deeper stuff going on. And uh, if we admit that some of these proponents are corrupt and are liars, fakers, although, of course, the majority are just naive, believe uh, in good faith that this is the case. But if we admit that some, because it's not just a mistake, it comes from somewhere and you can't excuse some of the proponents if indeed the anthropogenic lead is wrong. And then we have to look for other motives and there's many. Uh, That also explains why are the oligarchs and the energy companies on board with this? Well, like Dr. Ball touched upon, it's a great tool to get to implement several agendas that has nothing to do with climate. For example, globalism, it's a good facilitator for that. And also control, 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 which is where it's going in all directions anyway, in media, in terms of who's controlling the states, for the most part, not the people anymore, but the huge 
multinational corporations and, and the globalist oligarchs. So this is a good tool and it's a good tool to scam more man money. Anything that can be taxed, anything that they can bog us down with more fees and costs, perfect. So it's not a moral, ethical issue, like who cares for the environment or not, because the same people who are in favor of this doesn't give a toss on other areas when it comes to poison or climate or environmental protection. So, no, it's a complex matter. And I hope you understand then that you can be completely rational and sober and be critical to the anthropogenic lead. In fact, it seems to me that the anthropogenic approach is based upon ideology, whereas those who are really truth seekers are careful about making blank statements and are looking into other causations. And the sun is probably the biggest culprit here. And, and you don't even need really the data to understand that because all over the world since the dawn of mankind, the sun has been worshipped as a god and by advanced cultures and civilization. Why? Because... They knew if there's anything that is powerful enough to influence the globe, it is our father who art in heaven. And our mother earth is in so, on so many areas directly tied to the sun. So, you know, believing that we can take the place of the sun, that's pretty megalomanic. I guess there are hypothetics where we could ruin the globe, but it's not really the globe we would be killing. It would be life, or at least human life, on the globe. I believe we have the power to suicide ourselves. But you can blow all the atom bombs in the world and the globe would still be there, although we wouldn't. So that's that. Now, uh, I just also want to say, I, of course, try to fact-check as much as possible some of the more... Should I say paradigm challenging claims that Dr. Ball did? And to my amazement, they checked out because I was a bit skeptical to some of it. For example, the DDT thing. But man, that's interesting to look into. Seems that it's, you know, like, like he made a point about, like, like Paracelsus said, anything can be medicinal, anything can be poisonous. It, uh, the dosage is essential. And when it comes to DDT, it seems that coffee is as poisonous as DDT. And that there were really political reasons and, and other ulterior motives that was in play when that was banned. And uh, some countries, like he said, in Africa is still using it to, because we killed malaria in the West with the help of DDT. But in third world countries, they have millions of people dying from malaria because they can't use DDT. That's why some of them say... Screw it, we're going to do the same as you did. And, and it seems it's working well. And it's not even, oh, you know, it's the chemical companies. There. No, DDT isn't a big profit for the multinational corporations. That's probably why it's banned. It's um, not even manufactured by the globalist companies anymore. Basically, India and China, who's producing uh, today's DDT. And it's not um, patented anymore, so they can't make as much money on it. So again, we see a complete politicization of issues that we believe in our mind uh, has to do with health or science and there's other reasons behind. This is the complexity of the world we're living in now. So we have to be vigilant, we have to be critical and we can't be lazy. We have to investigate. Am I saying that there's no chemical pollutions on, on uh, crops and food? And all? No, of course not. No, no, I'm green to the bone. 
the only reason I'm not slaughtering the DDT anymore is because I've looked into it and, and things are not black and white. Sometimes there will be good causes on, on one side, other times on another side. We have to afford having two thoughts in the head at the same time without going into cognitive dissonance. So the only weakness uh, in, in Ball's uh, account today that I could find was when I confronted him with the cows, aren't they alleged to contribute to the CO2 pollution? He said it was only about methane, if I understood him correctly. But I checked it and it's actually, uh, there is this uh, claim that they are contributing also to the CO2 pollution. And of course, I'm not saying that's true. And even if it was true, I'm not saying it's a problem because again, we don't know to what extent CO2 actually is a problem. It may actually be a good thing for nature. It's food for the trees, right? So so it's not about that, but it's a general allegation from the CO2 proponents that the factory farming of cows are contributing to the CO2 amount. So either he misunderstood me or he's not updated on that claim and I can blame him because he doesn't believe it is a problem. So why would he care about all the different uh, arguments they're coming up with of what produces it. But it's unfair to make any guess or statement about his uh, view on this because he's not here to to offer it. But at least I've redempted my own uh, suggestion about it. it. It was correctly remembered by me that it is supposed to be a CO2 contribution. So that's it. Other than that, his stuff checks out as far as I can tell. Now you go and you do your research and see if you agree. Of course, if you don't care, if you... If you don't have time, uh, well, then no problem. I mean, we can't all be scientists or researchers or detectives, but then we at least must make sure we're not having strong opinions because you can't have strong opinions about stuff you don't know. Of course, you can, but then you're a moron and not a true seeker. So I advise uh, humility uh, on these matters. And I'm trying to uh, adopt that myself according to how much I can afford being sure. And we can never be 100% sure about these matters. Okay, we come to the end of today's controversial show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you appreciate that we're not just exploring philosophical stuff or mysteries or, or fancy stuff, but that we also, because you, you know what I say, reality is more incredible than fiction and if we're living in a reality where illusions and lies are strong driving forces first of all it's incredible just to unveil it second of all we're obliged to try to do something about it in order to get a better world so i owe it to you i owe it to the world to cover socio-political matters and though it will never be a hit in terms of numbers of audience, that's a cost we have to be willing to bear. So thank you again for for supporting us, for listening to the show, and hopefully you will spread this, share it with folks, and contribute to the general education and heightening of the standard of the current debate, because it's so impo- uh, important with different voices, uh, a variation of angles and approaches 
this uniformitarianism, this black and white trend that's ruling today's media and even education is really a detriment. Complete breakdown of our civilization, bankruptcy of our intellectuality, of our ability to function as a healthy society. We're in a collective psychosis on so many areas. So... Again, we have to be libertarian when it comes to the range of voices to debates. We can't be fanatical and we can't be suppressive of any. Because at the end of the day, if something is wrong, not factual, if something is an illusion and untrue, why are we afraid of it? Truth will always outplay untruths if both get equal field play. So those who fear that must have an agenda. It's only really if you want to maintain illusions that you're going to try to ban any threat, any opposition to it. And it's not scientific. The scientific approach is thesis meeting antithesis leading to synthesis and bringing us to a higher and more accurate position. Anything else is a fishy agenda. And we can only hope that the majority of human beings are interested in truth. Because it's not as popular as you would think, although, of course, it's celebrated in empty speech. But that's another matter. That concludes today's program. Your host, as ever, has been Ah. Thanks to your support and my team, I remain yours sincerely. Seeing you. Who is number one?